This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. It is Wednesday, August 21st, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with Ted Olson, our editorial director. Hey, Morgan. I'm excited to be back at Quick to Listen. I'm excited that you're back. And as I just said a couple minutes ago to you, I'm excited that you're back specifically for this actually pretty hot button topic. Yeah, I like hot buttons. So I actually don't think that the intro is going to get It's not people... that much of a hot button. Morgan, this is, you're, you're building it up too much. Our listeners are going to be like, what? Are they? Well, they've already seen what we're going to talk about, right? Because they've clicked on the podcast. Okay. So just tell them who our guest is. Our guest today, I'm very excited about this because he is one of my favorite writers for CT and for other places, is Bob Darden. He's a professor in the Department of Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media. You could stack, uh, you could fill a small library with all of the books and magazine articles that he has done. He is also a director of Baylor's Black Gospel Music Restoration Project. Definitely one of the world's foremost experts on black sacred music and especially gospel music. You can read a number of pieces he's written on that subject in CT archives. But this is not a podcast episode about gospel music. This is a podcast about religious satire. And the reason we have Bob Darden with us today is one of the things I know him best for, and that is that he was an, I guess an editor. He was actually the editor of The Wittenberg Door from 1987 until 2007. He did great work there under multiple, two different ownerships and many multiples of issues, in, including two title changes from the Wittenberg door to the door. I would say I grew up, but it, you know, my, my formative Christian years as a teen and college student and 20s were, were satirically uh, shaped, were shaped by Bob's work at the door. So I'm Hello, thrilled Bob. to have him here. Delighted to be here. Delighted to be introduced without an expletive in front of it when the Wittenberg door comes up. <laughs> Whoa. All right. Already we are getting into the hot button element of it. (laughs) Maybe just so we don't have to keep everyone in suspense for forever. Can you give us the two to three sentence version of what the door or the Wittenberg door used to be about? The Wittenberg door at its best, which is a subset of the Wittenberg door. (laughs) It was a religious humor and satire magazine. Its purpose varied through the years. And the purpose that I most identified with was that it used humor and satire to hold our mirror before the evangelical church. Started off as a magazine trying to help youth pastors and then with some satire in it. And then the kind of humor and satire grew to be kind of the, the core focus, although it's also known for its awesome interviews and other things. But yeah, most people remember it for its satire, its humor, its cartoons, and its doing all of that in service and love of of the church. I'm sure it will come up again in conversation. So let's get into our discussion today. So last month, Snopes fact-checked an article from the satire site, the Babylon Bee. The piece spoofed a Democratic Georgia lawmaker who tweeted that while she was shopping, a fellow customer had told her to, quote, go back from where she came from, several days after Trump had attacked four American congresswomen with the same language. The Bee spun their version with this headline, quote, Georgia lawmaker claims Chick-fil-A employee told her to go back to her country. Later clarifies he actually said, My pleasure. The Babylon Bee's piece was widely shared on social media. On its website, Snope explains why it fact-checked the satirical piece. Said this, The Babylon Bee has managed to confuse readers with its brand of satire in the past. This particular story was especially puzzling for some readers. However, as it closely mirrored the events of a genuine news story, with the big exception of the websites changing the location, we found dozens of instances of social media users who were puzzled by this article. And actually, in the Snopes piece itself, it took screenshots of some of these readers who had been sharing it seemingly with a lot of sincerity. Meanwhile, the B CEO told Fox News that Snopes running its fact check could end up deeming 
explain the website as, quote, fake news and make it harder to share its stories on social media sites. Earlier this week, Christianity Today reprinted a piece from several Ohio State communication researchers who found that the Babylon Bee's articles were frequently shared by people who thought its claims were real. While this or a particular story is political, the majority of the Bee's readers in targets are evangelical Christians. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to talk about the purpose of satire, what responsibility organizations have to help people realize that their articles are not real, and the Babylon Bee's effect on the evangelical internet community. I want to hear Ted's gut check before we start asking Bob all of our questions. When this whole thing happened, we're a, little, we're a couple weeks, we're responding to this a couple weeks after the story first yeah. came out. Did you have an opinion it's, on it? It's been a slow burn, right? Because this fight between Babylon B and Snopes has been going on for, for a few weeks. This study just came out in uh, the conversation, this kind of academic. I actually unfollowed the Babylon B probably, I don't know, a few months ago, at, just as I was kind of cleaning out you know, Twitter stuff, things that no longer bring me joy. I'm recondoing my 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 Twitter feed. The Babylon Bee over time has become you know more more political, definitely more political. And I've just found it. I'm like, all right, well, it's not bringing me joy, so I'm just gonna let it go. And then so it wasn't that surprising to see. And I'll tell you when I first read about the Snopes Babylon Bee kind of tiff. My reaction to it was both of these folks are fighting all the way to the bank because the more in which these two websites can fight with each other, the better they look for their kind of core political constituencies, the the more traffic that they'll get. And so, you know, when we uh, ran a version of that conversation piece about people believing pieces from the Babylon Bee, you know, we had a lot of people like, you're taking sides. And we're like, we are reporting on a study. But that's, you know, that's how everything is read these days. Not, is it funny, but which side does it take? And so that that's what I find annoying about about the Babylon Bees stuff. It's just point scoring more than it is. Well, we'll get into it. It's point scoring more than it is. I, I believe uh, the correct word is virtue signaling. Virtue yeah. signaling, sure. Well, yeah, but actually I think it's, yeah, I think there's a there's a certain kind of rally the troops aspect rather than a corrective action aspect. So we'll get into that and satire. I think it is kind of weird, obviously, to have a fact-checking site decide that it's going to fact-check something that is on a site that does not publish true things. And so I feel pretty sympathetic to the fact that as places like Facebook have tried to moderate, I guess, or stem the tides of how much fake news gets shared on their website, they've looked to different fact-checking sites to do that and to kind of use them to, to stop these articles from getting shared as much. And so, you know, I think I probably would have a gut reaction too. Like if CT started doing a satire thing and obviously my job here, one of them is pushing out stuff on social media and that could be really damaging if that's how these fact checking sites work. I'm not exactly sure exactly how Facebook employs Snopes or other fact checking organizations to not share or that, you know, if their algorithm picks up on that, I don't exactly understand that details, but at least from a publishing standpoint and a social media distribution standpoint, I understand that there's like this initial frustration that you would do that. From that angle, I, I completely get it. I also think that it is weird because in, in this particular study that we were like talking about and have on here, there's stuff in there about people thinking that different articles are real. And I will just tell you this much. In my experience on social media, there's a lot of people who do not pay attention to whom is actually publishing a piece. It does seem like people in general don't really know the names of outlets in the same way. And we know that they don't even go to the homepage in the same way that they do. So even if there is a way to specifically like articulate that something is satire, I don't think that is like dumbing down the audience at all. I just think that that speaks to the fact that we don't always look at who the publisher is maybe even as journalists or humorous, I guess, in that way. I don't think that that's a bad thing to, to be in that position. Right. You know, one interesting thing that the Ohio State researchers found is that when a piece is explicitly labeled as satire, people don't share it, people don't click into it, people don't read it. So that interplay of being initially fooled and then being like, oh, ha ha ha, it's it's foolish. That's part of the that's part of the game. And so they, you know, part of what Snopes was arguing was, yeah, these things should be labeled so that they don't get shared more. And part of what Babylon B is saying is, no, we shouldn't label it because then it won't be shared as much. There's a financial consideration here. Okay, well, we'll ask Bob to figure out this situation. (laughs) I have so many questions for you, Bob, but maybe the first thing that we should do to start off this conversation is like define satire. There's all kinds of satire. But satire at its highest form is written to exaggerate elements of an event, a story, or an idea to help people look more closely at that original idea or event. It's not necessarily humorous. So you can have something that's satirical without necessarily being funny or humorous, so long as it has kind of the point of improvement? You know, the Swiftian 
satire, depending on your, your taste, may or may not have been funny. And certainly with the Wittenberg door, there were things that we thought was funny that clearly nobody in our reading audience thought was funny, and vice versa. It, it is an incredibly personal, all kinds of studies on satire about education level of the people who read it and employ it, and the level, as we're seeing with the Babylon Bee, how that stuff is employed and how is that stuff accepted and and believe. In the past, satire has been more or less the province of people of a certain level of education. You take the idea that this is not attacking me, this is attacking this idea from an almost rhetorical point of view. But once you got away from the initial core of people, then you get the problem with the Babylon Bee, and occasionally the door, where just the average reader would not know if it was one thing or another. And there are times when you want that, but for the most part, then it no longer is satire because the people don't get what you're trying to do. Let me ask you, you know, you know, we, we, when we think of satire and, and when we think of, you know, kind of Christians and satire, you know, we do, we do tend to think in terms of, you know, G.K. Chesterton or, or like you mentioned, Jonathan Swift, maybe uh, Soren Kierkegaard had some satirical pieces. Do you see anything in scripture as being in the genre of satire? Certainly, Jesus could use hyperbole and exaggeration on occasions. The, you whitewashed tomb, Jesus was not actually saying this person looked like a, a, a sepulcher. There are times where Jesus uses language, uses it to make a point. The whole idea of a, all of the Sunday school lessons aside about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Is that satire? Is that an actual needle's gate where a camel gets on its knees, or is Jesus making a rhetorical point? Not impossible, but difficult. So yeah, and I, I certainly see it. And there are times in the book of Job and others where I see, are these people really involved in clever word pay? My, my colleagues at uh, Truett Seminary say the Bible is full of clever word play in the original Hebrew. There's a writer that I really like, Aaron Belts, who, who's written for CT. So I mean, does a lot of uh, really brilliant poetry, some of it even satirical poetry. You know, I read some of what he was uh, writing about. I believe it was in Comment magazine. But he, when he talked about Jesus' Jesus's use of humor, he said, you know, there may be some satire there, but he says, you know, in some ways, it's almost less jokey. The, maybe the closest analog would be like Andy Kaufman's performance, comic performance art. There's a commentary coming out from uh, University Press uh, later on this year looking at Ecclesiastes. And I, I had been reading a number of commentaries on Ecclesiastes for a sermon I was working on. The scholar there, and I'm blanking on his name, I'm sorry, maybe I'll get it into the uh, show notes. He was arguing that the closest form that Ecclesiastes is is kind of a, a stand-up comedy routine under an oppressive regime where there's kind of that kind of humor, but, you know, you kind of hide your meaning that you're, you know, you're, that you're taking shots at the powerful uh, a little bit. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I was just kind of thinking the difference between kind of stand-up comedy and, and satire. Those, those are kind of two slightly different things. But, you know, obviously, recently, those things have been conflated as you've had people like Stephen Colbert, who does both at the same time, right? He does kind of some stand-up, but he's in a character where he's also kind of, this not anymore, but where he was in a character satirizing kind of uh, conservative talk show hosts in the same way that, you know, when we talk about satire, the number one thing people jump to these days is, is fake news stories that were that was kind of not invented by the onion, but certainly perfected by the onion. The, a lot of these websites, Christian websites that have come out since then, larknews.com or uh, there's an orthodox one called the Onion Dome, including Babylon B. So that kind of fake news, it's interesting that, you know, we're, we're discussing that line between fake, <laughs> fake news intended to deceive and fake news intended to poke fun is kind of the dominant form of satire, but not the only form of satire. Bob, you, you wrote a book on Jesus's humor. Do you think that that was satirical or was he, was it, I mean, what's the difference between irony and satire? I didn't really get to a whole lot of the satire of Jesus, but what part of what the book, the argument was, and Jesus laughed, the redemptive power of humor, was that Jesus before and after and right up to today, that one of the areas that Christians have neglected in a way to to continue in the message and to make the message is humor and, and, and joy and laughter and how that we've long said that 11 o'clock on Sunday, more, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, but it's also the most dour hour. Every now and then a preacher will tell you a bad pun and the congregation will laugh uproariously, partly because they're so 
needy and grateful that somebody would even inject a little humor. I go to probably more black churches than white, and those churches rock with laughter before, during, and after the services. And I think we miss, we're missing something when we think it all has to be Puritan and Pilgrim-style church service. Well, let's lean into that. That's a very interesting comment that you make because thinking about Peter Berger or Helmut Thielek, who've written full books on kind of uh, the spirituality of humor as well, uh, you know, both of them kind of end up in the space that, you know, laughter is basically apocalyptic, you know, that, that or at least eschatological, right? It has to have a sense that something is wrong that you get in kind of Christian eschatology. Something right now is, in, is intensely broken, but that it can be redeemed and that there's a future hope that these things will be set right. And both Berger and Atilic kind of emphasize that like a joke has to have both of those things. You have to have the idea that there's a disconnect between what the person is saying or, or what this person is talking about and, and the way things should be. And if you, But it can't just be this kind of sad, aren't things messed up? There has to be some kind of hope that things can, can be righted. I mean, is that kind of, I, I, I would assume that would be felt more in a black church than in a suburban white church. I'm, I'm just wondering if that may be an explanation for why black churches would have some more humor, because when your choice is between laugh and cry, you're getting, laugh sounds better. Absolutely. I, I love that idea that Peter continues to write about and has gone back to, because I think it is such a rich vein. We're not talking about jokes. We're not talking about puns. We're not talking about riddles. We're talking about something bigger and vaster and deeper, this cosmic idea that, as a number of writers have said, Easter was the biggest joke of all on Satan, thinking he had won, but really there was a deeper message here. Satire is a subset of humor. And it's done well and done badly, just as as humor is done well and badly. And we ignore this particular tool in our arsenal at our own peril. I'm curious, when you're talking about tools, obviously when we were reading your bio at the beginning, it seems like there's an array of different communication forms that you're accustomed to. When you decided that you wanted to kind of maybe confront the church with some of the stuff that you saw going on? What, or what led you to pick satire? Satire picked me. Actually, I had written a single article for the Wittenberg Door on the legendary Wahhabs, the world's worst Christian music band, <laughs> that ended up getting national play and actually a recording contract for the Wahhabs, a little family in Iowa. So Mike Iaconelli had wanted to step back from doing the door for the first 20 years. Um, <laughs> He wanted to get out of it as soon as he started it, basically. He says his uh, season of satire had passed. And so they um, asked me to step in as senior editor, partly because I was between jobs, I'm sure. And any salary sounded good at the time. <laughs> Boy, was I mistaken. <laughs> um, eventually, they sold the for a dollar the Wittenberg door to the Trinity Foundation of Dallas, an organization of homeless men and women, and I stayed on as editor. So Mike did it the first 20 years, and I did it the last 20 years before it sank like a tire iron in a swimming pool in 2008. And where did your ideas come from? The magazine was written 90-something percent by freelancers. So we would get, uh, as you guys probably do, dozens of unsolicited submissions every day. We would start pulling out the ones that made us laugh, which was the criteria in my case, that I thought had a point. And failing that, it just made me laugh. I would take some of those. Miraculously, each month, people would be on somewhat of a similar path. And we'd pull all those issues together and uh, had commissioned interviews with uh, major theologians and would package them together as the door. And it made it look like we'd been thinking about this all along. I'm sure you guys don't do that. (laughs) Never. Never. Who were the subjects that writers were allowed to target and what types of things or people or ideas were off limits? I'm not sure off limits was anything. We certainly, contrary to public opinion, Ted, we did have a bounds and boundaries. Uh, the, the personhood of the living Christ and the blood of Jesus was off limits. But Jesus, we believe Jesus was fully human, laughed and danced and made merry. Then one of my our favorite cartoons was it has a little uh, biblical age little boy standing half in a doorway and off panel board balloon is saying, shut the door, Jesus. Were you born in a barn? The readers either loved that or hated it. But in fact, Jesus was kind of born in a barn. 
does that demean Jesus or does it help make Jesus more human without poking fun of the uh, divinity of Christ? Were you interested in talking about Christianity at large or was it supposed to be focused on American evangelicalism? Under Iaconelli, it was probably more focused on the evangelical church in America. When the Trinity Foundation took it over, I think they wanted to look more at Christianity at large. Why Mike and Tick and all the guys at Youth Specialties were so successful and why this became essential reading and not just with every seminary in America, but every major theological leader I ever talked to subscribed, canceled, and subscribed again, is that all of those people, as do I, loved the church. They loved what the church was trying to do at its best. But it seems to me the best satire, and when the magazine was at its best and making a difference, it was coming to satire out of a place of love. If you're doing satire because you want to tear something down, then it becomes very close to bullying. There, there can be, in a lot of a satire, this kind of punching down problem, or, or even just even punching you know, the political opponent. So the thing about kind of some of the Iaconelli era door was that you, you always got a sense that uh, even people that they disagreed with, that, that there, was a, there was a love and a kinship, and a, it, was, it, was, it was kind of a family, the kind of joke you tell around the dinner table, the, the family joking. There, but there was always, you know, there was always an aspect both, both under the Youth Specialties era and, and the Trinity Foundation era. There was, this, there was always a, a kind of a reforming spirit to it. Uh, the Trinity Foundation kind of famously, in addition to being a, a community for the homeless, made its mark especially as being kind of an anti-televangelist organization. There's, there was a shift between the uh, youth specialties era and the Ole Anthony era, a, a shift between kind of a subtle shift, right, between reform and crusade uh, in some ways. There was a lot of just straight up anti-televangelist stuff as, as, as it shifted. I guess for me, that's one of the questions with Babylon B, because Babylon B also, uh, when it, as it shifted ownership, moved from kind of jokes about evangelicalism to jokes about democratic presidential candidates as a, as a kind of core area of their jokey these days. Obviously, it's possible to make those kinds of jokes, right? I, the Daily Show had uh, great success with, with, with some of that. How do you demonstrate, I guess, love for political enemies or religious enemies in a satire? I, I'm... I, I, one one thing that as I was preparing for this talk, I, I came across a quote from John Piper where he says, you know, he's he he loves satire, he's prone to satire, but he said it's difficult to do satire without sounding arrogant. Hard, hard to say that he quoted someone else, uh, uh, James Denny, saying it's very hard to show that Christ is magnificent and that I am clever at the same time. Why I don't read Babylon B, which I quit reading some years ago for the very reason that you mentioned. When something is, as the door tried to be, with the exception of televangelists, still will stand by what we did on televangelists. And if you saw the, the, the gemstones on HBO, uh, <laughs> righteous right. gemstones, the critics are saying that it's not believable, it's way over the top. But I spent 20 years investigating those idiots, and nothing they did was over the top. <laughs> like a documentary. Much worse than is in the HBO show, for sure. When it works, you're an equal opportunity offender. You're after right and left and Christian and Protestant, and you're going across the board, casting your arrows. And some satire, and it looks like, again, I haven't read Babylon B in a couple of years. I, it got very unfunny when it became a bad political. When there's so many people doing good political humor, they're doing it pretty, it's a pretty lame process there. Satire is lining people up, 10 people up, shooting them with a paint gun, and the person who yells the loudest, you shoot 10 more times. Right. There was some of that with the door. We, we would get our letters, they would come in. And other than the ones that said, you idiot, you've gone too far with this one, cancel my subscription. And I'd go back and look at the article and say, this is the article? All of the really crazy, mean-spirited stuff we have in the rest of that issue. And this little funny cartoon about daisies and Jesus lambs and stuff. You're canceling over this? I can't help that. But I would see through the letters that came in that there were things that people resonated with and, and people felt particularly hurt. When we would get letters saying, I had to give up on the evangelical church. I've been burned by too many toxic pastors and relationships and dogma. And the only thing that keeps me with any connection to my faith is you, is the Wittenberg door. And we received those 
I promise you monthly, and I, ch I cherish those. I read them very carefully. What is it that is driving these people, these honest seekers away from the faith? And when we identified what that was when we could, then that would become a, a, a target. At least that's under the Trinity Foundation. Can't speak for how Mike handled that. You mentioned earlier that some of the best stuff that you did had to do when it was very clear that the, the author loved the subject. Do one or two pieces that exemplify that come to mind? While you think, I'll mention two. So there was a great one that came out when I was in college that was the book of Revelation as told through any number of fiction writer versions from it was you know, everyone from Tom Clancy to Frank Peretti to, uh, you know, I can't remember all of that. But it was clear to be able to emulate those writers voices that whoever had been writing this loved those authors and also loved scripture. Uh, another one, uh, this is a, a very classic door piece. There was an ad for this was back when designer jeans was a thing. There was a, there was like a fake ad for various Christian celebrity designer jeans. And it was like Billy Graham, <laughs> you know, loosens with age. Uh, it was uh, trying to remember some of them. That. It was uh, actually I have one of the one of my prized possessions is a DVD that I have now uh, scraped and have on my work computer of every uh, PDF of the door from his first uh, 30 years. I regularly. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it. Something that kind of saves the faith of people who, you know, are, are on edge. That, that has been a moment where I can come back to just get a chuckle and say, you know, our movement has always been messed up and go on with my work. So I, I, I have appreciated that. Anyway, talk for long enough. Bob, any, other, uh, any others come to mind for you as, as great examples from the Doors history? Well, this is a, a, a little different. We did from time to time take something like the story of the prodigal son. I'm trying to remember the author, but it was a, a, a woman. And she retold it from the point of view of the mom who's never mentioned and how different that story would have been from the mom's point of view. The door was the one place where people could take those kind of chances. It <laughs> happened to be funny, but it had incredible insight. It made me go back and reread that story again and again, the original, thinking there's so much more to be gleaned from these things. They're more like outlines, and Jesus is allowing us to fill in. One that sticks with me for the same reason is the story of um, David and Goliath, but it actually told as if it's the Kennedy assassination, and that all of the unique parallels between the uh, the two, the, the five smooth stones, what happened to the other stones, the, <laughs> <laughs> he comes out in one translation, he's on a grassy knoll overlooking, and that the on and on and on, these funny little parallels the writer made between the Kennedy... All right, we're now we're launching more conspiracy theories. theories. And nothing funny about the Kennedy assassination. That is my, but at the same time, what that did and what helped me on a, on a later book was to re-look at scriptures we had read so many times and heard so many times that they become white noise. And to find a way to look at the scripture fresh one more time and see if there's actually a whole lot more going on to it and Mrs. Gardner, my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, was telling me when she read verbatim out of the Baptist that they gave for fourth grade Sunday school teachers, now this is what this means, kids, full stop. This is what this means. And here is the lesson. As I got older, so many of these things got a whole lot richer. And at, at its best, the door was the one outlet that enabled to do that. And satire, that's part of what satire does, again, when it works. You, you mentioned scripture. I, I, I did wonder, you know, sometimes when you think about Christian use of satire, uh, I'm sure you got this quoted at you a lot, but it does something, it's something that naturally kind of has to come up. And that's a, a verse, there's a number of verses like be sober-minded, those kinds of things. You know, the probably the one you heard most often was, was from the book of Proverbs, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is the one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Did you ever have to wrestle with with that? Or, I mean, in some ways, the Doors brand of satire was less, depended less on that kind of initial deception. Is there an aspect where we should really heed the warning of, the, of Proverbs here not to do, not to do the I was only joking kind of, kind of humor? At the cover, for many years, we had a thing that says the world's pretty much only religious humor and satire magazine. Anybody who read The Door, of, I hope, very quickly know that that was our intent. Sent out articles and only, um, and thing got picked up by various outlets. We always insisted that we had that little uh, tagline to it. During the Iaconelli years, they didn't have that. 
instead they said, to believe greatly, it's necessary to have doubted greatly, which I also believe, but I like ours a little better because shocked value and deceiving people is not the same as going through a process of trying to point out something that's wrong with love. The Wittender door at its best, and, and Christian satire at its best, Ship of Fools and Lark News, the ones that, that we're not talking about as opposed to Babylon B, would be like the uh, the little boy at, at the old fable where say, look, Mom, uh, king is buck naked. The only one who would say the king is buck naked. Everybody else was just nodding about how well-dressed the king was. Well, good satire is sometimes that little boy who points out what we're all either afraid to say or just overlooking. And I wonder how humor changes as the political climate changes. So the boy is not making a joke. The boy is just kind of saying, hey, the emperor has no clothes. There's an interesting article in Politico a couple months ago, I think now, where it was talking about the change in late night talk shows under the Trump era, saying that, you know, we had, you know, before Trump, we had kind of this high humor, low Hector comedy from The Daily Show. And as kind of it went, as The Daily Show went on, Stewart kind of became a little bit more hectoring, a little bit more finger waggy. The humor became a little bit more directed, I guess, or at least had a hope of of making of political change or became in some ways more exasperated. And this uh, writer, and maybe we can add a link in show notes, was talking about how now, now the late night talk show, the political humor from the Samantha Bees or the John Olivers or some of these folks, it's all, it's all about the hectoring. It's all, it's almost, it's lecture uh, based with a, with some joke setups. I thought that was a really interesting observation, whether people feel like the stakes are higher or whether just the, the context is different and how much does humor have to be funny in a kind of highly politically charged, highly divisive mode. I mean, when I think of like the times of high, high political conflict, you know, Germany in the 30s or the era before the Civil War or some of these kinds of some of these times, you don't think of those times as being high humor times. Like there's not great. Well, like really Mark, jokey times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's some Mark Twain uh, well, counterexamples. There were, you know, most of the black, great black comics come out of the civil rights movement. Sure. The, the Richard Pryors and all the others who grew up during a time when, like you said about the black church, either you laugh, either you make fun of it, or you give up. And all those years of persecution for the great Jewish comics who came out in such great numbers for so long. And now we're seeing so many more uh, women comics than we ever saw before. Because so many things are, are not better for women there used to be humor magazines in Russia, but my friends who go regularly and speak Russian said they've all been suppressed or destroyed. A good society, a strong society, should be able to handle laughing at itself. If your president, whatever party you're in, can't handle laughter, particularly laughter at his or herself, then there are other issues that need to be resolved and very quickly. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Your publication was not necessarily around in, I don't know what to call it, the heyday of social media or peak social media times. I don't know. Facebook and Twitter might get even bigger still. I'm just curious how social media in your mind changes how we experience satire. It's very difficult to do a successful satire in a 144 characters. I had to look at my grad student to know how many characters. 144 can do a pun, it can do outrage, but it can't do the kind of nuanced writing based on reality with a hope of redemption that satire does. Now, you can, in Facebook, link to the Boral Ritz Report, or you can link to the B, but it is not a 
place for creating, you got to go somewhere else to go see it. Those are the demographics, that group of grandmothers who are forwarding kitten pictures to their grandchildren. We have discovered in recent elections, those people who had grown up in the era of media that had multiple layers of accountability really hadn't developed the uh, ability to separate out. Like you said, they don't know the difference between ABC News and something that looks very close to ABC News, but is really coming from some Russian bot in Romania. Twitter. I remember early on, you know, Twitter's changed over the years, right? I remember that the big conversation about Twitter early on was that it was almost a game. It was like a game of wit, you know, like it kind of was a humor outlet for people. And as things have gone on Twitter, you know, it is more of this kind of outrage machine. You know, one of the major kind of philosophers of humor is uh, this guy, uh, Henri Bergson. But he had this interesting theory where he talked about, it wasn't talking specifically about satire, he was talking about laughter in ge- laughter and humor in general. And he said, you know, laughter is about enforcing a social conformity. Like the whole point of laughter is A, that there's a community and B, that laughter is almost a scolding of something that does not conform to that community. Now, you know, I mean, I don't know about that, but it, it is, I mean, because his a lot of his examples were of the kind of uh, pratfall or we why do we laugh? Why do we laugh when someone, yeah, at things that are not funny. So why do we laugh when someone, you know, slips stu- and falls. Slips and falls. Why do we laugh when someone stutters? Why do we laugh? You know, why are people prone to laugh at, you know, the disabled even, he was saying. Kind of mean, a lot of his things were based on not just jokes, but trying to connect our laughter response to things, the dark kind of laughter to the light laughter. And his theory, as I understand it, was that both of them were kind of about a community and enforcing the the standards of that community. Again, I don't know, but it does seem like Twitter, what I see on Twitter, the humor that is on Twitter now, including kind of Babylon Bee or New Yorker style humor is kind of a humor that is about enforcing in-group thinking uh, and therefore is the kind of humor that does well on a scoldy medium like Twitter. The two things that I was thinking about were just that it probably does make a difference if you are reading the particular satirical piece from a publication that is either branded as satire or you're basically a place where that publication's brand is being leveraged to present to you that humor versus an individual person is saying, you should find this funny or they're resharing something. Like, I think that there's just a part of us that reacts to it differently, especially when you're talking about the in-group, out-group dynamics of it and the ways that we might feel more pressure if it's our pastor to either laugh at that or to roll our eyes. We're going to have an emotional reaction based on who is sharing it in a way that I don't know if we feel the same emotional reaction if it's a a news outlet. Even if we don't like the news outlet, we don't necessarily like personify it in the same way. And the other thing I was thinking too was just about how at least if you follow the onion. Well, no, even the article that we were talking about for the Babylon Bee, right? There's a lot of satire that comes in real time right now. Some of that is like really great and awesome, especially I know that's why a lot of my peers loved getting their news from the Colbert Report as they felt that they could actually be informed about what was happening, but it had a spin on it. But I do think there must be some difference in that way the humor is when it's attacking, again, something, a news event in real time versus like larger ideas that are being raised by the particular movement. I think when you have a magazine that kind of forces you to mock those ideas or larger trends rather than the in real time thing, which may even contribute to why sometimes we feel fatigued from reading some of these, like, you know, when you're talking about the Borowitz Report or the Babylon Bee. The Wittenberg Door, after the piece was accepted, we, we we would have nearly a full month to polish it up to make so every line was funny to make sure that it wasn't just gotcha humor and there is an element of humor where it's just surprise that's the best kind of humor in some ways is that juxtaposition of two common things put them together to create an unexpected third thing that's where the surprise comes from why so many stories and jokes are on the group of three three priests walk into a bar and it plays off the fact that we have expectation, expectation, and then upturn that expectation. In a small, quick snap, what you're mainly trying to do is play gotcha. Here's something I think stupid that they did. Isn't that stupid? Why don't you laugh with me? As opposed to a spending the time to set it up, give detail, and pay it off. Because if you're doing that, you're making a point. The, the classic example of that is in the old days, if you're 
comic writer was uh, accurate, the one you just quoted from. A man walks along, steps on a banana peel, and falls on his back, and people laugh. Or a more sophisticated humor is laughter upward. So the man walks along, sees the banana peel, looks around, and very smugly steps over it and smiles at, ha ha, I've missed this obvious trap that some other idiot's going to step on, and steps into a manhole. It is the, the setup and then the payoff. Now we have a guy with some personality who's kind of smug and arrogant, and he gets what's coming to him. Yeah, and that upsetting expectations can be tricky for the satirist, too. I remember a story that Steve Taylor told. He, Steve Taylor, kind of in, in the entertainment industry back then, a music artist, Christian music artist, who did a lot of kind of humorous and satirical songs. Well, as he got older, in the same way that Mike Iaconelli kind of lost the uh, fangs for doing straight-up satire, Taylor uh, stopped, you know, wanting to do straight-up satire songs. He did a song called Banner Man about the guy who holds up a John 316 banner at uh, at sporting events. He had intended it as a kind of tribute song, like a straight-up, like, you know, this guy's eccentric, but, you know, look at him kind of, you know, going out on a limb for evangelism in a way that I would be embarrassed to do. And and everyone thought he was mocking the guy. He's like, no, I'm trying to actually say this is this is good. But he says, oh, I guess, you know, when you make your uh, living, you know, mocking things, then people assume you're mocking everything. You know, that certainly can be a danger of, of the people who are involved in satire is that sometimes people don't know what your target is. And I think that's part of what's part of the deal with the Babylon Bee is that when it's not clear who their target is, if that target kind of is, you know, anything and everything, and they don't necessarily have a, a direction that they're, that they're pushing, it can be really confusing. You know, the, the, the humor can be uh, confusing. I don't think people are responding purely out of their own political biases. I think it's also like, where, where are you going with this? Which, you, which the onion can get away with, right? The onion can get away with it because you know that the onion at the end of the day is not trying to make some larger point about society. It's just you're only there for the joke. But I think that's what, you know, the Christian satirist, in theory, either because of that kind of apocalyptic eschatological telos or whatever, has has a has an angle that they're pushing. And if you're known for reforming, having a, a reforming edge, that then you all of a sudden uh, take your sword and, and start poking it outside the church rather than inside the church. There's the expectation, <laughs> that reversal of expectation that can also work in a humorous way can also just make people mad. And there are times when people need to get mad. But most of the time when the door failed, it was because exactly what you said. I hadn't sharpened and honed the point enough or I didn't know what the guy or gal was trying to accomplish with this. Always, sometimes we just have a top 10 list that would be funny. But for the most part, if it wasn't goal-directed, then it could have been Mad Magazine or National Lampoon. I want to go back to the discussion that we had at the beginning of the show, which is just about, you know, what next step some of these outlets, I guess, including the Babylon Bee, should take when people are ended up misinterpreting them. You know, if it really hurts their business model to put satire on the front of it. I'm curious if you guys think that there are best practices for confronting people who are sharing satire sincerely to let them know that it is actually satirical in a way that obviously will not blow up in your face as most of these things tend to do. Because I would imagine that if there's not a somewhat of like a peer policing model on this, then... No. There's no FECOM for satire magazines. I don't think it ever hurt the door that it was called Religious Humor and Satire Magazine. Everybody knew when they turned to Ship of Fools. Everybody knew when they turned to Lark News. And But we, you knew that that was the intent. When the Babylon Bee, whether intentionally or not, doesn't make it clear that it's satire, then they deserve whatever heat they're getting. I have a different take, and that is I have seen the most outrageous satire that is obviously fake still be passed around as as believed you know there's twitter people you can follow there's subreddits you can go to that's all about green caps of people believing ridiculous things from the onion i have seen there used to be this kind of ridiculous uh website called christ wire that would just was it wasn't it wasn't funny it was just you know pretending that it was run by a bunch of extremely homophobic racist christian leaders saw that get i saw that get picked up by huffington post and by other places like look at this outrageous pastor and what they have to say like that is your reason you think it's outrageous is because it's someone's faking and being outrageous. You know, that, that classic onion article 
years and years ago about how Harry Potter was having all these kids do seances all the time. I got forwarded that article so many times from angry parents about CT needs to cover this. I'm like, it is from The Onion. It is. Do you not know what The Onion is? And have you read the article? It is so obviously a joke. You know, people don't get it. So I don't know. And even things that We've run a couple pieces over the years that had satire, had parody at the top that people still so, so Snopes believed. should just chill out, maybe. No, I don't no. think okay. so because Snopes also has – this is the thing that people are missing in the uh, Babylon Bee controversy. Snopes has plenty of things about Onion articles too. Snopes generally is responding to reader questions. You know, They claim that they got a number of reader questions about – some Babylon Bee articles. You know, they have an article about that, you know, Harry Potter seance onion article. Now, here's adding on another layer of that is that there are certainly bad actors that are sending stuff into Snopes pretending to be confused about Babylon the disinformation Bee articles. situation, yeah. 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 Hey, this is 2019. There are bad actors upon bad actors upon bad actors. I don't know what to do about that, but I, I don't know that putting satire or parody keeps people from believing stuff, but I also know that there's a lot of people who pretend to be duped that are not actually duped. And I know there's a lot of people who pretend to be outraged that are not outraged. There's a there's a big game that is hard to parody because it is itself a parody. All right. Well, with that, we will discuss conspiracy theories later this year. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a strong opinion about this, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. You can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We'd love to hear you engage with some of the arguments on the show and let us know what you agreed with and didn't agree with. I just want to remind everyone that Quick to Listen is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And this week, our September 2019 issue is out. It is online. If you want to read it online or if you want the physical copy, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. And I know Ted you always have a lot to do with this issue. Is there something that stuck out to you? It, it is. It's a really cool issue. Uh, I really like it. It's got a cover story on home, uh, classical Christian homeschooling that people will be interested in. I think the item that I particularly enjoyed was this month's editorial. Usually they're written by Mark Galley. This one's written by uh, Andrea Pulpent Dilly, who was actually just here this last week with a, a number of our remote staff. It was awesome to have her. She's a Texan uh, for she is, people who don't know. That's right. Just look down, down the road from Bob. But yeah, she has a, a piece on uh, celebrating uh, sexual ethics and why the historic Christian view of human sexuality is a, a joyful view. And I think that is a message that I am really eager to keep out in front of people as we work on CT. Obviously, issues of human sexuality are our core, but I think uh, one of the main things we want to do at CT, rather than engage in finger waggy, rather finger wagging, rather than punching down, as we've been talking about in uh, in this podcast is to present a joyful, orthodox, beautiful view of human sexuality that calls people to something rather than rather than away from something, even though two doesn't entail a ways. So that's an editorial on this issue by Andrea Pulpent Dilly, and you should read it and you should subscribe to read it. If you would like to become a subscriber, go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. We are going to wrap up by doing precious moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week or so. Ted, that's you. So I've already said it was a joy having all of these remote you employees. You can elaborate. I mean, you said, you know. We yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, it, you know, not just Andrea, but our full remote, uh, well, almost our full. I regret that uh, Rebecca Randall, our uh, science editor. Uh, was, Becca had McNeil been, and Rick. Yes, exactly. R-cubed. R cubed. Yes, the R's. But a number of our, in, including our, our new staff, I'm feeling a lot better about CT being more fully staffed than we were. We had some openings for a while. Hopefully those will continue. Oh, man, I'm just so excited about the CT team right now and just spending some time getting to know our, our new staff is really cool. And so I think people will see the effects of that in upcoming issues of CT. I know it's a very executive editor bossy thing to say, to be like, my precious moment was having all my staff together. But, you know, it was. It was awesome. I came home and told my wife, I am more enthusiastic after tonight about CT than I have been in this so We can long. be friends even if you're predictable, uh, just so true. you know. Yeah. I know you want the counterintuitive angle, but you don't I, have to hate your staff just I, to be counterintuitive. I know, right? I, I mean, I could do the other predictable thing and be like, it's the start of the school year. That's a pressure. Right. I'll do that next week. You know? 
Okay. And Ted, people can find your takes on Twitter at where? Ted Olson, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N, where you can have more of my rantings about how not funny things are on a daily basis. No, no, that that's not what I do there. All right. Bob, what's yours? Oh, I got to check a bucket list item. Last week, PBS is doing a series in the fall of 2020 called The Black Church in America. And they were traveling the country interviewing legendary black pastors and theologians. And I was uh, interviewed by one of my heroes for that, Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Oh, wow. Awesome. But I have quoted in my own books and admired, watched on Finding Your Roots and read all of his books. But to spend two and a half hours with one of my heroes who's just as funny and charming and well-dressed in person as you would have hoped was a precious memory for me. Wow. What was your favorite question that he asked you? Oh, it was the worst question. It, uh, he asked everybody, but he didn't warn us. Each one of us uh, at the end of the interviews had to ask to name the five favorite gospel songs of all time and why. And you were stumped? Is that what I'm understanding? No, but my brain worked a whole lot faster than my mouth. <laughs> I know that feeling, Bob. So where can people find you or your work outside of this show? Uh, the most recent one uh, that I am real proud of, it's Nothing But Love and God's Water, Volume 2, Black Sacred Music from Sit-Ins to Resurrection City. And I will say it's very, very good. So you should, you, you, if, you're in, if you're at all interested in gospel music, protest music, African-American music, Give Bob is an amazing guide through that world. Thank you, Tim. So my precious moment this week is that yesterday I left an event earlier than I anticipated and was in a, I don't know, far-ish part of town. And so I called some friends that lived around that area and asked if I could stop by their house because I hadn't seen them in a while. And then I got to spend two hours on their back deck eating, there's a special name for it, olive paste. I don't know what this some fancy condiment thing that you stick on crackers. I'm the wrong co-host to tell you what the fancy name for olive paste is. Sorry, everyone, that I am offended by not showing off my refined eating taste. But it was great, and I really enjoyed that they were open to being so spontaneous with me coming over. When I called, the wife was actually currently in a hiding spot because they were playing sardines. So she had to whisper to me. It was great, though. So, yeah, that was definitely my precious moment. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you go to Apple Podcasts, go ahead and rate and review the show. Send us all your opinions at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Truly appreciate everything you have to say about the show. This show is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. We hope that you have a great week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.